Episode 23. The early hours, usually empty, are filled with runners training. Gatsby season is here. Bunnies freeze. Greetings and welcome in to the Patuxet General. I am your host, Jess. We have a lot to cover this week. Stuffed quahogs, known around here as stuffies. The drink is a simple margarita and the thrilling continuing reading of the case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft. But first, we here at the Patuxet General would like to thank our Patreon subscribers, to whom we are everlastingly grateful and humbled. If you would like to join them, there is a link in the show notes to our Patreon page. Thank you. Now, about these stuffies. This recipe in Rhode Island comes two ways, spicy or mild. Spicy means that charisse has been added. Often stuffies are served with hot sauce and lemon. Use both, that makes it bliss. The term stuffies is Rhode Island short for stuffed quahogs. We have all grown up seeing our parents having stuffies and cocktails. In Rhode Island, every resident is legally able to dig for quahogs one peck per person per day, from dawn till dusk, no night digging. For this recipe, you will need one Rhode Islander or a license or straw-bought quahogs, two tablespoons cornmeal, one clam rake or garden rake, one peck basket or empty 30-pound onion sack, one lemon, juiced, one onion, finely diced, four ribs of celery, finely diced, one and a half pounds of stuffing mix or five cups of breadcrumbs, one dozen fresh fist-sized quahogs, two cloves garlic chopped fine, one half tablespoon Worcestershire sauce, two eggs, one tablespoon Italian seasoning, one eighth of a teaspoon black pepper, one quarter teaspoon salt, one tablespoon cracked red pepper, one tablespoon hot sauce, and some paprika for the top. Clam digging is done during low tide, so you have about an hour or two to get the job done comfortably. It would behoove you to bring a couple of friends until you feel like you're a pro, so that you can clam fast. Children learn on the wet sand. They dig with their feet until they find what feels like a fist-sized rock, and dig it out with their hands. Adults do the same thing only with a rake and about two feet under the water. I say this because blue crabs move quickly and will pinch your toes if you aren't careful to avoid them. Either put a rock in an empty bushel basket or attach an empty onion sack to your belt. That way you can put the quahogs in the back and they will still be in the water and move with you as well. Nothing is better than quahogs you caught yourself. So fresh, so tender, not to mention how wonderful it is to work up an appetite. Now let's take these quahogs, fished or bought by you, and put them in a large bowl or pot. Fill it halfway with cold, non-chlorinated water. Add about half a tablespoon of salt and a bit of black pepper and one quarter cup of cornmeal. Put the rinsed and gently wiped down quahogs in and let them macerate for about an hour and a half out of the sun to stay cool. After that, remove the quahogs and then dump the water. There should be a little bit of sandy grit at the bottom of the bowl that your shellfish has spat out. Good. Nobody likes sandy stuffies. 
Put them in a pot that has about three inches of water in it. Add a bay leaf, a clove of garlic, and a little salt and pepper. By the way, any liquid would do. Uh, wine, beer, cider, chicken stock, fish stock. If you were doing these spicy, you could put your charisse in, cut in half, of course. Cover them until they boil, then take off the top and let simmer, steering every once in a while until they open. With tongs, take them out one by one as they open, leaving the slow pokes another minute or so. If perchance one never opens, do not eat it or put it in with the others. Just throw it away. I guarantee nothing good will come of further investigation. The best thing would be sand. Every other explanation just gets more grim. This has never happened to me with shellfish that I have dug, but does sometimes happen with store-bought. Anyway, save the liquid. If you pour this out gently, you can keep any sand at the bottom of the pot to be discarded. Depending how chunky you want your clams in the stuffies, you can either put them through the meat grinder attachment on your mixer, with the chorizo if that's how you fly, or you could just finely chop both. Set the shell aside, they will hold your stuffing. So, take a large bowl, add to it your stuffing mix or breadcrumbs, onion, celery, garlic, eggs, Worcestershire sauce, Italian seasoning, salt, pepper, and cracked red pepper. Then add the quahogs and or the charisse. Mix until incorporated. It should hold together when scooped with a large scoop, the size that would fill one of your quahog shells. If it is a little dry, add some of the cooking liquid bit by bit. Sprinkle paprika over the top, and at this point they can be frozen or baked at 400 degrees for 20 minutes. Served with lemon and hot sauce or a bit of the cooking broth. Enjoy! Tequila, eh? Henry Rico Farden, The Professionals, 1966. Here we are at the beginning of May. Patuxet is getting ready to party with our neighbors. Gatsby Day season is here, and we will all need a lovely cocktail in our back pocket to break out at a moment's notice. So let's lay in a couple of bottles and a bag or two of limes and lean in. This is my idea to have ready for the spur-of-the-moment friends. This drink is to be served with stuffies that you have made ahead and froze. While they're cooking, you can start the drinks. Enjoy. Margaritas, Patuxa General Style. For our recipe, you will need one garnish lime, one lime zested and juiced, two ounces of tequila, white, one ounce orange liqueur of your choice, shaved or crushed ice, one half ounce simple lime syrup, for the syrup itself, you will need two cups water, two cups sugar, and lime zest. For your garnish salt, kosher is yummy. Let's start with the syrup. So dig this. You can make this way ahead of time and put it aside in your refrigerator. I keep it in a mason jar and it's good for all season. Not that it will last that long. So, two cups of sugar and two cups of water go into a saucepan. This is not a joke. Simmer them until clear, then add the lime zest and shut off the heat. Let cool and chill in the mason jar in the fridge. Pro trick, keep your martini glasses in the freezer to skip a step. Now, in a shaker full of crushed ice, put two ounces tequila, one ounce orange liqueur of your choice, one half ounce lime syrup, one ounce lime juice, and shake with all the shimmy you have. With the top on, of course. And your top on, of course. Then shake a bit more. 
Then strain and pour into one of the frozen glasses that has been dipped in salt and lime zest. Enjoy. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his electromagnetic pinball museum and restoration arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft, Chapter 3, Part 6. Then on the 15th of April, a strange development occurred. While nothing appeared to grow different in kind, there was certainly a very terrible difference in degree, and Dr. Willette somehow attaches great significance to the change. The day was Good Friday, a circumstance of which the servants made much, but which others would quite naturally dismiss as an irreverent coincidence. Late in the afternoon, young Ward began repeating a certain formulae in a singularly loud voice, at the same time burning some substance so pungent that its fumes escaped over the entire house. The formulae was so plainly audible in the hall outside the locked door that Mrs. Ward could not help memorizing it as she waited and listened anxiously, and later she was able to write it down at Dr. Willette's request. It ran as follows. Experts have told Dr. Willette that its very close analog can be found in the mystic writings of Elpheus Levy, that cryptic soul who crept through a crack in the forbidden door and glimpsed the frightful vistas of the void beyond. And she heard this had been going on for two hours without change or intermission, when all over the neighborhood a pandemonic howling of dogs set in. The extent of this howling can be judged from the space it received in the papers the next day. But to those in the ward household, it was overshadowed by the odor which instantly followed it. A hideous, all-pervasive odor, which none of them had smelt before or have smelt since. In the midst of this mephitic flood, there came a perceptible flash like that of lightning, which would have been blinding and impressive, but for the daylight around and then was heard the voice that no listener can ever forget because of its thunderous remoteness, its incredible depth, and its eldritch dissimilarity to Charles Ward's voice. It shook the house and was clearly heard by at least two neighbors above the howling of the dogs. Mrs. Ward, who had been listening in despair outside her son's locked laboratory, shivered as she recognized its hellish import, for Charles had told her of its evil fame in dark books, of the manner in which it had thundered, according to the Fennel letters. Above the doomed Patuxet farmhouse on the night of Joseph Kerwin's annihilation, There was no mistaking that nightmare phrase, for Charles had described it too vividly in the old days when he talked frankly of his Kerwin investigations. And yet, it was only this fragment of an archaic and forgotten language. Close upon this thundering there came a momentary darkening of the daylight, though sunset was still an hour distant, and then a puff of added odor different from the first but equally unknown and intolerable. 
Charles was chanting again now, and his mother could hear syllables that sounded like ye Nash, a throg, ending in a yaw, whose maniacal force mounted in an ear-splitting crescendo. A second later, all previous memories were effaced by the wailing scream, which burst out of frantic explosiveness and gradually changed form into a paroxysm of diabolic and hysterical laughter. Mrs. Ward, with the mingled fear and blind courage of maternity, advanced and knocked affrightedly at the concealing panels, but obtained no sign of recognition. She knocked again, but paused nervelessly as the second shriek rose, this one unmistakably in the familiar voice of her son, and sounding concurrently with the bursting machinations of that other voice. Presently she fainted, although she is still unable to recall the precise and immediate cause. Memory sometimes makes merciful deletions. Mr. Ward returned from the business section at about quarter past six, and not finding his wife downstairs, was told by the frightened servants that she was probably watching at Charles' door, from which the sounds had been far stranger than ever before. Mounting the stairs at once, he saw Mrs. Ward stretched down at full length on the floor on the corridor outside the laboratory, and realizing that she had fainted, hastened to fetch a glass of water from a bowl set in a neighboring alcove. Dashing the cold fluid in her face, he was heartened to observe an immediate response on her part, and was watching the bewildered opening of her eyes when a chill shot through him and threatened to reduce him to the very state from which she was emerging. For the seemingly silent laboratory was not as silent as it appeared to be, but held the murmurs of tense, muffled conversation in tones too low for comprehension yet of a quality profoundly disturbing to the soul. It was not, of course, new for Charles to mutter formulae, but this muttering was completely different. It was so palpably a dialogue, or imitation of a dialogue, with a regular alteration of inflections, question and answer, statement and response. One voice was undisguisedly that of Charles, but the other had a depth and hollowness which the youth's best powers of ceremonial mimicry had scarcely approached before. There was something hideous, blasphemous, and abnormal about it, but for a cry from his recovering wife, which cleared his mind by arousing his protective instincts, is not likely that Theodore Howland Ward could have maintained for nearly a year or more in his boast he had never fainted. As it was, he seized his wife in his arms and bore her quickly downstairs before she could notice the voices which had so horribly disturbed him. However, he was not quick enough to escape, catching something himself which caused him to stagger dangerously with his burden. For Mrs. Ward's cry had evidently been heard by others than just he, and there had come in response to it from behind the locked door the first distinguishable words which that masked and terrible colloquy had yielded. They were merely an excited caution in Charles' own voice. But somehow their implications held a nameless fright for the father who overheard them. The phrase was just this. Shh! Right! Mr. and Mrs. Ward conferred at some length after dinner, and the former resolved to have a firm and serious talk with Charles that very night. No matter how important the object, such conduct could no longer be permitted. 
For these latest developments transcended every limit of sanity and formed a menace to the order and nervous well-being of the entire household. The use must indeed have taken completely leave of the senses. Since only downright madness could have prompted the wild screams and imaginary conversations and assumed voices which the present day had brought forth. All this must be stopped, or Mrs. Ward would be made ill and the keeping of servants became an impossibility. Mr. Ward rose at the close of the meal and started upstairs to Charles' laboratory. On the third floor, however, he paused at the sounds that he heard proceeding from the now disused library of his son. Books were apparently being flung about, and papers wildly rustled. And upon stepping to the door, Mr. Ward beheld the youth within, excitedly assembling a vast armful of literary manner of every size and shape. Charles' aspect was very drawn and haggard, and he dropped his entire load with a start at the sound of his father's voice. At the elder man's command, he sat down and for some time listened to the admonitions he had so long deserved. There was no scene. At the end of the lecture, he agreed that his father was right, and that his noises, mutterings, incantations, and chemical odors were indeed inexcusable nuisances. He agreed to a policy of greater quiet, though insisting on a prolongation of his extreme privacy. Most of his future work, he said, was in any case purely book research, and he could obtain quarters elsewhere for any such vocal rituals as might be necessary at a later stage. For the fright and fainting of his mother, he expressed the keenest contrition and explained that the conversation later heard was part of an elaborate symbolism designed to create a certain mental atmosphere. His use of obtrusive technical terms somewhat bewildered Mr. Ward, but the parting impression was one of undeniable sanity and poise, despite a mysterious tension of the utmost gravity. The interview was really quite inconclusive. And as Charles picked up his armful and left the room, Mr. Ward hardly knew what to make of the entire business. It was as mysterious as the death of the poor old cat, whose stiffening form had been found an hour before in the basement, with staring eyes and fear-distorted mouth. Driven by some vague detective instinct, the bewildered parent now glanced curiously at the vacant shelves to see what his son had taken up to the attic. The youth's library was plainly and rigidly classified, so that one might tell at a glance the books or at least the kind of books which had been withdrawn. On this occasion, Mr. Ward was astonished to find nothing of the occult or the antiquarian. Beyond what had been previously removed was missing. These new withdrawals were all modern items, histories, scientific treaties, geographies, manuals of literature, philosophic works, and certain contemporary newspapers and magazines. It was a very curious shift from Charles Ward's recent run of reading, and the father paused in the growing vortex of perplexity and the engulfing sense of strangeness. The strangeness was a very poignant sensation, and almost clawed at his chest as he strove to see what was wrong around him. Something was indeed wrong, and tangibly as well as spiritually so. Ever since he had been in this room, he had known that something was amiss, and at last it dawned upon him what it was. On the north wall rose still the ancient carved overmantel from the house on Olney Street, but to the cracked and precariously restored oils of the large Kerwent portrait, disaster had come. Time and unequal heating had done their work at last, 
and at some time since the room's last cleaning, the worst had happened. Peeling clear of the wood, curling tighter and tighter, and finally crumbling into small bits. With what must have been malignly silent suddenness, the portrait of Joseph Kerwin had resigned forever. It's now staring surveillance of the youth it so strangely resembled, and now lay scattered on the floor as a thin coating of fine bluish-gray dust. We want to thank you all for joining us here today at the PG, and we would like to take this opportunity to remind you to feel free to reach out to us here at our email, jess at patuxetgeneral.com. We love your recipe suggestions, and well, you know how we feel about ghost stories. Think about booking us for a food presentation or podcast-related event. But until then, I'll meet you right back here at the Patuxet General. A something for posterity production. Pre recorded in Patuxet. <laughs>